That's fine. No, no. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Alright, welcome to this week's episode of Attica Shrug, the podcast about culture and politics in the South and things going on this week. Uh, with me, as sometimes, is Chad Watson. Hello. And as always, is David Dykes. Hello. And uh, I'm Wes Cheek. I'm here uh, in the basement drinking tea. Uh, they're opening up the spillway this later this week, so New Orleans might or might not flood. be exciting to see. Oh, yes. How are things out in... Yeah, spring's almost here. Houston, Chad. How are things in Houston? Oh, Houston's great. Um, Houston's great. Uh, Houston ISD, their superintendent of less than two years, uh, is been hired away by New York City. They're facing a massive budget shortfall, and the government is threatening to come in and take over their school district. But uh, their superintendent got hired by New York City schools. <laughs> well, that's what you want out of your school district right now. Yeah, know, the corporate buyout. All right, so, and, uh, <laughs> David, how are things in Mexico? Things are good. I'm uh, finishing up uh, evaluations and grading for the semester, and as much of a, of a pain as that is, it's always good to look back and look at every single student and have to articulate something about how they're doing and what they're up to, and it makes me think about every single kid, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, yeah, everything's good. Nerd, nerd. Nerd, cool <laughs> nerd. What, what are the semesters there? What is this? Some weird semesters? Um, somebody's going by with a really loud bass system. Automatic weapon. It's a, <laughs> oh, no, no, this is Mexico. It's just a really loud bass yeah. in their car. But um, um, we do. Uh, we start in September, and then we do our first evaluation at the end of November. And then one now, and then one at the end of the year. So it's like trimesters? Yeah. Uh, interesting. Hmm. Uh, but regardless, it's yeah, good. I had, a, uh, I had a super southeast Louisiana slash southern weekend. That's it. The uh, I saw pictures uh, so of a, was it pictures of a crawfish boil? I did go to a crawfish boil on Saturday, my friend Ryan's birthday. He has his annual crawfish boil. He does a very spicy boil with pineapple in it, and I like it a lot. So uh, I mainly eat the potatoes, but it was good. And uh, my six-year-old hates crawfish, and my two-year-old is now a crawfish fiend who stands right under the table and just kind of waits for crawfish. I'm pretty much with the six-year-old. gobbles them up. Yeah, I know you don't like them, but I like the, the, the act of the crawfish eating, even if you don't not crazy about crawfish. Yeah, it's usually a good party. Yeah, it's great. Well, everybody gets together, 
um, and hangs out, and you know you boil over time, and then wait. You do a few boils, and you pour them out. So everyone just just hangs out. I think it's good. It's a good hangout. And then um, Friday, my program was having our symposium, and I got to talk with uh, this guy, Doctor Zach Henson, who is a social activist and organizer in Birmingham, Alabama, who talked to us about the the election of Randall Woodfin there. And he's with the Cooperative New School for Urban Studies. They're starting the whole kind of system of cooperatives in Birmingham. And uh, they played a role in the Randall Woodfin election. And he was kind of outlining how that works and how he thinks that leftist social activism in the South works. And so he was a really interesting guy to talk to. Um, and he was, he's, he was a organizer education was at the Highlander Center in Tennessee. Oh, okay. So, there we go. So I, I talked to him and his wife about that. Wow. Wow. You're living in Mad Max out there. <laughs> yeah, it's um, not a good day. I remember Man. once when you were in Japan and we're talking about the motorcycle uh, racket in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm, okay. And it's I think I'm just having good, yeah. one of those nights. <laughs> uh, maybe the Bolsozoko travel to, to uh, San Miguel. I've been seeing a lot of Japanese people here. I told them about you. Yeah, <laughs> We're thanks. big in Japan. <laughs> They seem to be here on the tourist plan. Oh, sure. And then Sunday, I went to Poverty Point, way up in North Louisiana. Have you ever been there? No. It's, uh, you drive up, you through Mississippi. It's right outside of Vicksburg, or a little bit outside of Vicksburg. And it's uh, the only World Heritage Site in Louisiana. And it's um, a massive, like, 3,000-year-old Native American mound settlement that's uh, been relatively well-maintained and is now... A th- being, there's still parts of it that haven't been excavated and stuff, so still undergoing excavations, but it's, you know, way out in the country, but it's along what used to be like a branch or part of the Arkansas River, which isn't anymore, and it was just, you know, thousands of Native Americans lived in this gigantic settlement for hundreds of years or thousands of years and built it up and then um, at some point left. So as I was reminding people, uh, we are capable of doing that. We are capable of walking away through our um, dedication to our civilization. I remember, I remember that from anthropology classes in college, but I never went there. I never saw it. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. It's really nice. And it, there weren't that many people there, which is great. Um, and did like a hike around it and stuff and saw a lot of different wildlife than you have down here, which was cool. Saw a lot of tracks, got to look at raccoon tracks and wild boar tracks and things like that. And uh, I drove back along a big section of the Natchez Trace, which is uh, super beautiful, if anyone's ever been on it. It looks like a storybook. While my nephew is staying here, I want to take him down to Teotihuacan and to some of the closer ruins so that he can see that. And he went this last week, he went with our friend Jake to uh, the butterflies down in Michoacan, the uh, uh, monarch migration. And he had a great time doing that. Oh, great, yeah. And he and I are watching um, first season of True Detective, so I've been thinking about you a lot while I uh, watch that. (laughs) And about Chad, the the Yellow King. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yes. Take off your mask. if Chad and I were to begin driving towards each other at the exact same rate of speed, we would uh, collide in Carcosa. I think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think we would. I've uh, actually been getting a lot of uh, 
you know, those Facebook uh, time where you got updates, like your memory. And yeah. apparently, me and my sister uh, posted a lot of, like, three years ago, we posted a lot of uh, True Detective uh, memes back and forth at each other for... What is your sister's favorite TV show? Uh, all time? True Detective? Yeah, I can confirm. She has said that. Yeah. She might have changed her mind, I mean, because there are, like, Seasons of Twilight that came out after it. Yeah, and there's uh, Chicago, Chicago Hope, Chicago Fire... Yeah. Chicago, uh, Chicago Internal Affairs. Um, <laughs> Chicago Iron Man. Chicago Race Crimes Division. Um, <laughs> I thought it was the Boston Race Crimes Division. Yeah. Just, oh, we're overbooked. We got so many cold <laughs> yeah, cases. No. <laughs> Solve it. Um, so we're gonna do we're gonna do a theme we're gonna do a theme episode in a while. We're gonna do a theme episode uh, about music, music theme episode, but. We're just going to note and kind of put a pen in this for later that right now the um, teacher strike in West Virginia is going on. And I think, Chad, you said this on social media, and I've also been telling my classes this. For me, this is the biggest thing in my lifetime that's happened kind of for educators and in labor, I think, in America. No, this I mean, the largest labor action in decades. And that it's a wildcat strike. Yeah. And it's teachers. is... I mean, it's, it's like teachers. the intersection. I don't know. I don't want to get too much into it, but it intersects so much of what's right and wrong in today's society. Right. But I think if you're like me, it makes you very happy to see that they're able to do this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've talked about a lot that kind of is West Virginia. All these things that go on in West Virginia, we would like to talk about, is part of the South. But West Virginia is very definitely not part of the South, but also... Uh, kind of is in a way because it's part of Appalachia and that line blurs a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then to add to that, we have the Oklahoma teachers look like they're going to strike as well yeah. in the next few weeks. Yeah, they're going to make an announcement, I think, on Friday about when, I think, I don't know, I mean, it's not a completely done deal, but they're going to make an announcement about when they're going to strike. Yeah, and I've heard part of that has to do with that their testing is on April 2nd. So yeah. if they strike before the testing, they'll be out during the testing, and their federal funds depend on the testing, so they actually have a lot of power in this right. situation. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, what I read was that they're, I guess they're going on spring break. Most of the schools are going on spring break mm-hmm. on Friday, and so they're trying to decide, are they just not going to come back for spring break, or, yeah, they're going to wait and basically threaten to walk out, like, the day state testing starts, which would... <laughs> That's pretty incredible. So it's these... Two states, and we've talked a lot about is Oklahoma part of the South, and I don't know anything about Oklahoma, so I don't know. And West Virginia, we know technically it's not, but in so many ways it is. So I do think this applies to us. And yeah. also, we're all teachers, so I think we're all very interested in how this works out. Um, and I think we'll probably talk about this more on the next episode. There's a lot of really interesting organizing stuff and like labor history of Appalachia going wrapped up in it as well. It'd be interesting yeah. to get well, Amber on to talk about uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma? It would be. And I have a friend here who did labor organizing in West Virginia, which maybe we could grab her. That'd be great, too. Um, okay, so what we were talking about doing today, we've been talking about this episode for a little while, and all this news happened, so we hadn't squeezed it in. What we were going to do, is it our five favorite musicians from the South? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm too definitive about it, since it was your idea, David. Well, I mean, uh, uh, bands or musicians, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I included bands in the music. 
So, how do you want to do it? Do you want to do it a good old, um, a good old round robin on it? Yeah, let's do the the countdown. I want to say first, kind of something about the criteria I used. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. Yes, I have. Yes, yes, I'm gonna have to make those stipulations as well. So one of the things is that there's a ton of people, like Lightning Hopkins or Loretta Lynn or Dolly Parton, who I think are brilliant mm-hmm. genius who I think are great musicians and often great human beings and all the rest, but I don't actually sit down and listen to them very often. Like, they're not something that is super important to me in a personal way as music. They're more important as cultural figures and things like that. So I didn't put them on my list, even though I think they're great. I'm in agreement on this. Can I ask you one thing, too, as part of our things? So, as with movies, we stipulated that To Kill a Mockingbird is a great Southern movie, and so it wasn't going to go on our lists. Are we doing that with Johnny Cash for this? Uh, that'd be fine. He's not on my list. Is Johnny Cash the To Kill a Mockingbird of Southern musicians? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not... Uh, I love Johnny Cash in a lot of ways, mostly for sentimental reasons, but he didn't make my top five. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's good. I'll, well, I'll stipulate that he's the uh, Tequila Monkey. Well, he, I mean, he kind of intersect. I mean, he was he married into you know uh, he married into the first family of old timey music or the first family of country music in the Carter yes. family, uh, and he was a big. I mean, he hung out with the Carter family, so I mean that's a a um, I don't know. And he did yeah, sort of. He was yeah, around. He kind of bridged like. Arkansas, Tennessee, uh, Nashville, and the, the older country scene. I don't know. Yeah, I, and the East I found Tennessee. kind of formative in the, yeah, in the East Tennessee with the, with the Carter family. So, yeah, I, I think my criteria is much like yours, David. Like, I went with people I listened to, even though there's, like, tons of, like, so much of our music is Southern music, right? I could have gone with any jazz artist from the formative age of jazz, and I didn't. Yeah. And I could have gone with all these country musicians that I really, really like, and I didn't. So... I think mine is, in a lot of ways, just a, uh, here's another way we can think about Southern musicians, or what I might sit down and listen to a whole album of right now, I put on there. Yeah. Uh, Chad, do you have any stipulations you want to give first? Um, no. I, well, I try. I thought about this, and like, do I just want to put bands from the South, uh, or band, or do I want to put bands that are Southern because there are some uh-huh. bands that you would not know they are from the South, or some musicians that you would not know. Um, but then, uh, like uh, Two Live Crew, Two Live Crew, like Two Live Crew, um, like uh, Sugarland. That's another band I didn't know was from the <laughs> South. Um, and but then I just decided to go with bands from. I just decided to go that they were geographically from the South and um, sort of remained in the South, like didn't move. Away. Okay, so Toby Keith, Garth Brooks. Yeah, um, that guy. Uh, and that other Bubba guy. Bubba Sparks. Bubba Sparks. Bubba Sparks, <laughs> Rick Ross. Um, Chris Brown, the Neptunes. <laughs> the Neptunes. That band uh, that I went to see when I went to, uh, when I was in Tuscaloosa, when you were in college in Tuscaloosa, that band that we. No, wait, that was actually. Yeah, Grand Torino. That was a band from Knoxville that we ended up not seeing that I think yes. was in town, yeah. Grand Torino. That's 
All right, well, so David, since you uh, want to do this one, why don't you start us off with number five, and we'll go David, Chad, then me, and we'll just go around. Uh, so my first number one for me is Bill Monroe. Mm-hmm. Are we, Bill Monroe. Are you starting with number one or going five? I'm going five. I'm working one. towards number one, starting at five. Okay, so your number five is yeah. Bill Monroe. And Bill the Monroe. reason Bill, of Bill Monroe is because... He was really the first bluegrass that I listened to. My parents listened to him. I heard him around the house. Mm -hmm. And I think it was some of the first music I really, really got into. And, um, yeah, it was just great music to me. And um, uh, nothing else in the field of bluegrass has ever uh, struck me as quite so good. And I think that he had a certain pop sensibility, even though he was very authentic, very much from an uh, bluegrass country, but he, um, um, but he also made music that I think reached out past Kentucky at least and past just the South and was part of that movement that included Flatt and Scruggs and uh, a lot of the early bluegrass people who were, you know, did, I don't know, did guest appearances on the Beverly Hillbillies or whatever. <laughs> Jailhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They're very good. But uh, anyway, Bill Monroe for me, uh, representing pretty much all of bluegrass music. I want some sound. Yep. We know our our friends Phil and April have a son named after Bill Monroe. I didn't know that. Yeah, Mo is a Bill Bill Monroe. I think he's Monroe. Ah. Um, Also, like, Bill Monroe is interesting because, like, bluegrass to me is kind of like uh, reggae. So hold, hold on for a second. Bluegrass is kind of like reggae in that we think it's a lot older than it is, but it's mm-hmm. actually kind of the newer generated, like, so ska is older than reggae and country is older than bluegrass. Yeah, Bill Monroe uh, was kind of one of the innovators of it, I think, uh, almost the inventor. Yeah. Right. And it's a lot of it has, is like, you know, part of urbanization where people are leaving the hollers and going to the city and singing about missing uh, kind of where they're from. So it's a really interesting genre. Well, he standardized the the sound of what, like, I mean, it was old time. He took old-timey string string music and made it into what people mm-hmm. think of now as bluegrass. And I think what yeah. appealed to me so, even when I was a little kid was what you were talking about, Wes, uh, uh, missing the holler and all that, all that wistfulness and nostalgia I was a sucker for even when I was, you know, like six and seven years old. <laughs> yeah. The uh, smoke rising from the holler. Yeah. The the, sad, the, fo- the fox hunter blowing his horn. That's the Dillards. Anyway. And seeing their little <laughs> yeah, footprints in it, the snow. And I think Bill Monroe's singing voice, also underrated. He's got a great singing voice. Yep. The originating the high lonesome sound. Okay, so Chad, do you want to go with your number five? Yeah. Um, hmm. I will. Uh, yeah, I will go with uh, n- my number five on that kind of that same note. I'll go with the the, the nitty the nitty gritty dirt band. 
the sort of like circa the, uh, the 1972 album, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Which was a great album. Which was really, yeah, what, yeah. Which was like a greatest, like it was more the, the it was just a country, like Nitty Gritty Dirt Band was like a country, what we might think as like a, it would be on the old timey country station. But then they put together this album, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, with, um, yeah, all the uh, sort of Bill Monroe's, uh, prede- like his pre- um, his descendants, the his first, like his children, his firstborn children, all his firstborn children of Bill, the first generation of the of the uh, people after Bill Monroe were sort of on this one album. And actually, they put another album out a few, like about a decade later, that was pretty good. But I, I like those albums, and I kind of like I, I like the I mean. Yeah, I like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, but I really like those Will the Circle Be Unbroken. Yeah, it's such a good album. It has uh, Dark as a Dungeon on it. It's my mm-hmm. favorite version of Dark as a Dungeon. It's really good. There was a period of time where I just listened to that album over and over and over. I think I bought it in Austin when I was living with you, David. I think I bought it out there. It didn't have my record player, I don't think. Uh, but I just remember having it and listening to it over and over. It's Excellent, excellent. Yeah, they went back and found like a lot of the formative country musicians and had them play traditional songs on it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, my parents had that album. Yeah. I used to listen to it a lot on, you know, vinyl on the big stereo back at the house. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Dark as a Dungeon's another song that's kind of like bluegrass in that it seems like a folk song, but is actually not at all a folk song. All right, is it time for my number five? Yep. My number five is kind of a cop-out, but I'm going to do it. I hope at some point in the future, I think we'll do uh, a show on, like, the southern punk rock scene in the 1990s. But I'm going to just say, like, uh, well, I'm going to pick one representative band, but I'm going to say, in general, all of the local bands that I saw between, like, 1990 and 1996 uh, that were from the South... And we're so kind of good and distinct and spoke in a, uh, about stuff that I experienced and cared about. So bands like Radon and Spoke and Less Than Jake from Gainesville and more local bands like How Poozo from Panama City. Uh, and all these bands would like break up because like one of the members would join the Navy or something. It was really kind of Florida stuff to happen. Uh, even Moultrie built right, Klingon Winnebago. And then all the Atlanta bands like Inkwell, Car vs. Driver, um, uh, and, and the Richmond bands when I was living in Richmond around a lot like Four Walls Falling and Inquisition and even Guar who toured all the time and still do and who are awesome and Avail who almost kind of hit it big and one of the best live bands ever and Jim Crack and Hinge from Atmore, Alabama but I'm going to pick as the example of all of these that I will use is one of my favorite live bands ever and one of my favorite bands from Richmond Action Patrol <laughs> Yeah, I think 
I did, yes. Yeah, they were great. Right. Great live show. They're actually, I just saw they're playing this April. They're playing a reunion show. But they, um, they didn't put out that many records, but their music was so smart and so original for the time. And if you ever saw them live, you could never forget it. They performed in orange jumpsuits and just went nuts. And this was kind of before... Um, I don't want to don't sound just bitter, but before like kind of mainstream music kind of caught on to what uh, what what would later be termed screamo was doing. So now you can listen to it and it sounds derivative. But they were playing this kind of just crazy out there smart music before other people were. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna cite Action Patrol, uh, who I also ended up being kind of friends with when I was in Richmond. They're great guys. I'm gonna cite Action Patrol as my representative for all the great local Southern bands that I saw in the '90s. That's my. Pick. All right. Okay, David, back to you for number, your number four. Uh, my number four um, is the B-52s. B-52s because, I think because they represent that weird South, in the same way that maybe Devo represents Ohio in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. like bored people who (laughs) don't fit into the culture, but they're still very much a part of the culture, and they're celebrating a certain sort of underground aspect of it. And the B-52s, back when they were kind of new and... uh, Strange. They were very, very strange uh, for us back in those days. They were very strange. And um, um, they were really queer, and they were really funny. And, um, yeah, they they took themselves uh, not too terribly seriously, but they were really good musicians, and they were really fun, great voices, yeah, they were fun songs, um, great party music. And really influential, informative music for me. Yeah, I was somewhere recently where someone put on like Rock a Lobster at a party, and I forgot how funny it was and how good it was. And I was thinking, somebody wrote this song in like 1982 mm-hmm. and put this out there. It's just a crazy song, yeah. but it's really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind of think of them, you said compared to the Devo, I kind of think of them as like the Southern Talking Heads. Yeah, my, yeah I think so. Because you, like, Talking Heads, I listen to their music, I'm like, I don't know how you wrote this. This is amazing, and you've got this made and put out there. The B-52s are similar. Well, I think yeah. uh, I'm a huge Debo fan in a lot of ways, um, uh, uh-huh. maybe more than more than most, and so uh, I put them in the same category, too, just because they were, mm-hmm. um, they were doing Weird very sort of good. art school sort of stuff, like... Uh, yeah, yeah, and the B-52s, I think they were a little bit more of a bar band than the others. Uh, um, mm-hmm. They weren't a bar band project. They were an actual bar band. Um, and Kate Pearson, great singing voice. Yep. So and they are good. Like, anytime those songs come on, those are still good songs. And I'm so partial to uh, Rome as my favorite B-52 mm-hmm. song. 
Uh, okay, Chad, you're number four. Okay, well, I will go similar. My first pick was similar to David's. I'll say my second pick was uh, number four. Number four on the uh, chart was I wanted to come up with uh, some southern uh, indie, some southern indie rock band that um, that I was listening to in probably my late high school, early college years. Mm-hmm. And one band that kind of I this is kind of a sort of I have a I have a number a real number four and kind of a honorable mention number four. My okay. my honorable mention number four was the Grifters, who who's a band from um right. they were a band from Memphis. rock i mean i i know a few djs that really like to play their record on their radio show um and but they never kind of hit it they never hit it like indie rock big like they never got big as uh like archers of loaf or um i don't know yola tango but you know never that big And I was thinking they almost they were they were almost my number four, but then I was I was, they had another there was another band that I thought was a little more influential and kind of a band that I still like the Grifters kind of fell off. My, I don't listen to the Grifters uh, that much anymore. I went back and listened to some of their old albums, and I don't know like some of their records I liked. I like I like uh, Crapping You Negative is one of their uh, it's probably my favorite. Is it still still a good album? I recommend it. Uh, in record stores everywhere, uh, crapping you negative. Probably not in record stores everywhere. But the band that I decided to pick after all that, I decided to pick uh, <laughs> Super Chunk from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. probably started listening to late high school and have continued to listen to them since and I don't know it was kind of their 
I don't know. That was a time when I was listening, when I was looking for new things to listen to, and kind of they, and I kind of stuck with them, and they are, uh, you know, they, uh, Laura and Mac, they started... Um, got very wealthy off of starting Merge Records. Yeah, off of starting Merge Records and got divorced, and they're no longer together, but they're still in the band. Um, mm-hmm. And I listened to the drummer. Like, he's not the... Not the not the drummer, original. not the original drummer, Mac or Chunk. I think the the original yeah. drummer was named was what who the band was named after. But he has not been in the band for a long time. But I listened to John Worcester. He plays drums for I think every band, every uh, non non arena touring band out there. He plays drums for them, and he is a uh, one of my favorite uh, prank phone callers and. <laughs> Um, he plays for the uh, the Mountain Goats. Yeah, he plays for the Mountain Goats and the Bob Mold. He plays in the Bob Mold band. Oh yeah, yeah. and the Mountain Goats are now a southern band because they yeah. moved to Chapel Hill. Yeah, so probably to uh, be closer to John Worcester. Um, yeah. So well, and I, I have no comment on your pick, Chad. What's that? I have no comment on your pick. Okay. So that's my pick, and also they have a connection to uh, April and Phil. Yeah, they, Phil's been to lunch at, at, with Mac. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think Mac and um, Chunk. Eddie. I think he knew. I don't. I can't think of. I don't know if that's the drummer's name or not. The the original drummer. He was like yeah, a, it was something like. That. I think that's how he knew Mac. That's how he knows Mac. He knows Mac through the oh, okay. original drummer. Yeah, I've seen um, Super Chunk like live across the span of their history, and they were great every time. I saw them in like 1995 at the Black Cat in DC, and they were great. I saw them in like 2010 playing under a subway station in my neighborhood in Kyoto and they were great and they had like their kids on tour with them in Japan wearing like headphones in the audience and I said something to Mac about um, I haven't seen you guys like live since Corner Shop opened up for you 16 years ago and Mac was like I can't believe that was 16 years ago and uh, yeah but they were consistently across that span of time they've been just a great live band if you ever get a chance to see them and uh, I do. I will tell one story. I went to see them. This was in San Francisco, and I think this was, for some reason, I don't know how I got on. I don't know how I get. I mean, I guess the same way I get on any sort of tear. But I went on a tear where I was arguing with my roommate and my girlfriend, who would later, for some reason, go on to marry me, uh, about how indie rock was really just uh, was basically heavily influenced by classic rock. And they were like, no, this is just, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And it's sort of, there are lots of things happened, but one of the big, um, the big thing was the final, like we went to see after this week or two weeks or however long, we saw a super chunk and they came out, like they did their show. They let, they went back, they came out, they did their encore and they said, well, like management has told us we have to be out by uh, midnight. So we only have time for one more song. So I think we'll make it a good one. And they just broke into Born to Run by... Um, <laughs> and I was like, there you have it. QED. QED. <laughs> um, well done. Yeah. All right. So I'll move on to my number four. My number four is Houston, Texas' own Scarface. I sit alone in my four-cornered room staring at candles. Oh, that shit is on. <laughs> Let me drop some shit like this here. Yes. 
At night I can't sleep, I toss and turn Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned Four walls just staring at a nigga I'm paranoid sleeping with my finger on the trigger My mother's always dressing, I ain't living right But I ain't going out without a fight See, every time my eyes close, I start sweating And blood starts coming out my nose There's somebody watching the act But I don't know who it is, so I'm watching my back I can see him when I'm deep in the covers When I awake, I don't see the motherfucker He owns a black hat like I own so, I thought you were going to say Whitney Scott. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Scarface is, you know, a founding member of Ghetto Boys And had his own solo career Killer Mike lists him as the best, greatest MC of all time um, It's possible and with the, you know, Scarface has uh, so many, so many, I think my, my, my playing tricks on me is probably the greatest hip hop song of all time up there with, uh, they reminisce over you. Um, and but there's so many other good songs. Damn, it feels good to be a gangsta, G code, six feet under still all these songs. And even in a solo career, I think on my block is one of my favorite songs about, uh, growing up in the South that's ever been written. Uh, it's, it's just an excellent, excellent song. But with Scarface, you know, you get the bad and the good. Uh, kind of the problems that are endemic in a lot of hip-hop are uh, endemic in Scarface's music. There's homophobia, there's uh, misogyny, there's things I don't like in it. But I think that's true of a lot of good music. But I think when you look at Scarface's career in general, he's just been one of the most prolific producers of great hip-hop and great lyrics um, that exist. So... My Mind Playing Tricks on Me is probably his most famous song, and there's there's this point in it, at the very first, where he's just kind of talking to the microphone, and I don't even think it's scripted, where the kind of very famous first line where he says, I sit alone in my four-cornered room staring at candles, uh, yo, is this thing on? But I think that, to me, like is a start, that's like a great, the start of a great novel. Like, that's the as good as the, any first line in history. And then, you know, as we, if you know that song, is about the kind of the paranoia of being a gangster. And it was put out at the time when gangster rap was ascendant. It's a loaded term, but when gangster rap was out there, and he kind of put this song out, which was about how that lifestyle was also a lifestyle of paranoia and tension, and it would kind of just eat at you. Uh, and it's just a brilliant song. And I think Scarface has put out just really uh, brilliant, if sometimes uh, troubled music for a while. So my number four is Scarface. Sounds great. All right, are we moving on? Okay. Yeah, moving on. You can go with your number four. Uh, my number three. Number three, yes. Number three. Uh, my number three is Outcast. Um, just because uh, there's nobody more fun than Outcast, they have that sort of um, um, 
multiple personality disorder from having two really strong personalities uh, making the music. Mm-hmm. They uh, blend together pop music and hip-hop and uh, rock together in a way that I find just great. I just love it. I think it's... Uh, some of the music that I go back to again and again. I also listened to it at a time in my life that was really good when I was living in New Orleans, mostly is when The Love Below came out. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they're number three for me. I think it's a solid choice, and I will uh, retain my comment. Okay. That was quick. Chad, you want to do your number three? Yeah, I'll do my number three. I'll kind of keep it quick since I rambled about Super Chad. And I did t- That's fine. We can ramble. I did two and one on the last one. Uh, but actually, in a similar vein, I will go... My number three will be Slint. Kentucky, and yeah, I take them uh, kind of as uh, sort of they were kind of like the epi- they weren't the first Louisville band, but they were like the Louisville band. I mean, I feel like this is my opinion, maybe people, uh, my opinion that they were the Louisville band that they broke, uh, they uh, broke Louisville onto the uh, national. Uh, really? See, I think Sunspring was the best Louisville band, but that's just me. No, but I, well, well, we can agree to disagree. Okay, but but I think like Slint was the kind of the band. I mean, I felt like Slint was, and they were, they were sort of connected to every other band in uh, yeah. Chicago, or uh, Chicago Louisville, and like you know the Louisville Chicago. Pi- I guess that's what I talk about, thinking about the Louisville Chicago kind of pipeline. Um, yeah, in that period of time, Louisville was putting out so much good music. There were so many good bands, probably because of the college there all that other stuff but you get them and then all of that leads into of course Will Oldham and uh, Palace Brothers yes. who is kind of comes out of that scene and sings songs commenting on that scene yeah and I kind of when I think about Slint I think about oh like have you heard of Slint? if you like Slint you will like these 900 other bands that um, mm-hmm. and even though they only have two re- I mean the two their two records are good both records are good yeah, I forgot to even include Louisville bands because I was not really thinking about Kentucky, but all like the you know the Metro Shifter, mm-hmm. like I said, Sunspring. All of those really great music coming out of Louisville at that time. Um, all right, is it over to my third pick? Yep. Yes. My third pick is a little band you might have heard of before from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh-huh. uh, whose uh, nineteen ninety one album uh, "No Pokey for Kitty" is. Uh, possibly the best album made in the 1990s, a little band called Super Chunk.
Right. So, yeah. No, no. That's five. I'm glad they're mentioned twice. So, uh, Chad already covered a lot about them, but I go on this jag a lot about 1991 had a lot of really good albums. The one that seems to be now lodged in public memory is Nirvana's Nevermind. And I'm not saying this just to be a contrarian, but No Pokey for Kitty is ten times better than Nevermind. And when it first came out, magazines were like comparing Nirvana to Superchunk. Um, because Superchunk was kind of the the bigger band at the time. So they led, I think like 1990, Slack Motherfucker came out, which is still just a great 7-inch, a great song. Uh, and also apparently is probably where the word slacker came into common usage from. I don't know. That's been said. But yeah. No Pokey for Kitty was produced by Steve Albini, even though he's not credited on it. But it's just an amazing, amazing album. And I think one of the greatest uh, Southern albums, I don't think... Like Chad was saying, the bands that are Southern versus bands from the South, I think Superchunk is both. Yeah. Uh, so the, the whole album is very much kind of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Southern stuff. And I love Mac's voice. It's a voice that doesn't really exist on anyone else. You can't really imitate it. I don't know how he still does that voice. Uh, both the guitar players uh, work together very, very well. The drumming's excellent. Laura's a great bass player. They sound good. They are good. They write great songs. So my number three is Super Chunk. And even after No Pokey for Kitty, they kept putting out great albums. Here's Where the Strings Come In is also good. Uh, their newer album that has Crosswires on it, also very good. So a band I love. I still listen to No Pokey for Kitty the whole way through routinely. So my number three is Super Chunk. All right. A- Amen. Yeah. yeah. Um, Over to you, David. So I'm to my number two right now, and I'm looking. I've got them written down here in front of me. And number two and number one, like to to choose one over the other is very difficult. And I don't know that I am choosing one over the other, but I got to say one first. And for me, it's REM. one of the most important bands to me growing up uh, with Murmur and Reckoning where the lyrics were indistinguishable and it just showed me that that uh, music with hooks and with all of the stuff that I love from pop music didn't have to be uh, goofy or boring or about uh, straight people falling in love or about um um, partying, uh, rock and rolling all night and partying every day. And you didn't even have to be able to tell what it was about. And then the um, uh, evolution of the band over time to where they sort of very self-consciously became a uh, stadium-filling rock band, although never really stadium rockers, um, 
And then, you know, there's as far as I know, they're probably still putting stuff out at a kind of slow rate. There was, um, uh, you know, obviously. Oh, yeah. Mm, They officially had a last show and I strangely never watched it. I think I just can't. Yeah. But yeah, it's like uh, uh, I'm not quite sure why they're not number one for me. Uh, because like I say, in many ways, they're the most important to me. And they showed me in some ways, they showed me how to be Southern in a way that I didn't imagine before, because I always thought of myself as being not quite Southern because I didn't fit in very well. And then I realized with them and also with the B-52s that not fitting in is also part of, uh, Southernness. It's not just in Flannery O'Connor. Uh, that it exists in music too, in uh, maybe more accessible ways. Although and, you're naming uh, people from the same region of Georgia, we're all yeah, so maybe something about that corner of Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, REM. All right, that's your number two. Yep. All right, Chad. All right, my hmm. So my my number one and number two are uh, kind of. Tie. Well, you know what? Okay, I'll go with number two. My number two <laughs> band is uh, from Nashville. Uh, ah. A little uh, country, uh, country slash indie rock uh, band called The Lamb Chop. just one mainly they're one guy kurt wagner is the um is the nightcrawler the night cr- yeah, is the, say, night- the nightcrawler yeah i think we've we've talked about this before about we've him being the nightcrawler i think fine. that's what attracted me i thought it actually was i first started <laughs> listening because i was like wow like this was after nightcrawler had left the x-men and he was in excalibur but he was kind of he had left i think he had just left excalibur and so i thought it was kurt wagner was uh, had his own country band um no, but this, this, it kind of, I came across them at a time that, uh, it was, I mean, it wasn't, it's not like country music per se, and it's not old timey country, and it's not alt rock country, and I guess it was, it, he, uh, Kurt Wagner kind of came around, he kind of, I felt like he hit the scene right around the time that, like, there was all the alt country was a big, uh, the No Depression record label was putting out nine records a day, and, we were uh, seeing like the um, seeing a lot of uh, those kind of alternative alt country band like the old ninety seven. We were seeing a lot of old ninety seven. I mean, nothing, no, not to blaspheme old ninety sevens in any way, but but he was a little bit. It was a little more low key, and it was a little more lo fi, and it was kind. Of, it was like a cross between. Um, it was kind of like a cross between maybe. Uh, 
uh, George Jones and uh, um, oh no, I can't blanked on his name. Uh, Sebado, uh, Lou Barlow from Sebado, like Lou Barlow, yeah. and uh, so that is my my uh, my number two pick. All right, lamb chop. So my number two are two gentlemen from Atlanta, Georgia. Three stacks. Possum Aloysius Jenkins, Dookie Blossom, Johnny Vulture, Sir Lucius L. Left Foot, Andre 3000, and Big Boy, Outcast. think it might have been was it Elevators? I would have had to have heard them before then because they put out uh, Southern Player Cadillac music before that but um, I remember hearing Elevators and thinking there's no other group that ever sounded like that even if you listen to other Dungeon Family stuff, even if you listen to under, other like Goody Mob or whatever but sometimes there are groups that you just you can't figure out where it came from like how they sound like that and we, I mentioned Talking Heads earlier. Talking Heads are always kind of like that for me, but it's like, where did they get the idea that they could sound like that? Um, Outcast, I have no idea where it came from. And I know they got their start rapping Tribe Called Quest cover songs in like a strip mall parking lot, but they don't sound like Tribe Called Quest. They sound like themselves, and they sound so strange and so smart uh, and so talented. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, a lot, I have, uh, I remember when... Um, when, 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 which album? Uh, with Miss Jackson. When, when Stankonia came out, I remember I was in Atlanta to interview for the Jet program and staying with friends in Atlanta. We're just driving around Atlanta listening to Stankonia over and over and over again. And we're so excited about how good it is. And still, uh, Spodioti Delicious is one of my favorite songs of all time. And then when the speaker box Love Below came out, I was living in Japan. I got it on vinyl, the double album. And I made a prediction... I listened to it once. I made a prediction that in the future we would we would uh, regard Speaker Box as the better of the two albums. I think that has held up, even though the low is great. I think Speaker Box is just a great record. So just for everything that they are, for how weird they are, for how brilliant they are, uh, Outcast is my number two. Yep. All right. All right, David, is up to your number one. So my number one, and it's, um, uh, I don't know how it could not be this artist, but uh, again, R.E.M. is super important to me, and maybe even more important in a personal way, 
But I don't think there's anybody in music at all that I love more than Ray Charles. together uh, to make rock and roll more than anybody else I think mm -hmm. um, I mean you know there's uh, a million uh, different arguments about uh, uh, where it all came together but uh, for the sort of beauty and depth and soul of his voice for the talent that he has uh, on the piano for his uh, uh, blending of secular and um, uh, sacred music together um, yeah, he's just he's just a complete genius, I think. So Ray Charles for me is number one Southern you just musician. Want to a Floridian, number one, and, and a Floridian, yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but also uh, via Georgia. Via well, I think he was like born like on the border and like crossed at some point, but yeah. Well, that's a solid choice. Ray Charles is amazing. They should make a movie about that guy's life. That'd be great. Uh, but who could you get to play him? Who could who could possibly be talented enough to play Ray Charles? <laughs> so, uh, Chad. All right. Chad? So my um, so my my final my uh, number one. I will. Uh, he is. Uh, so I said, is he a southern musician? He was born and raised in the South, and then he uh, went to live in Philadelphia. It's uh, Elton John, isn't it, Chad? It's what? Elton John. Elton John. That's right. Elton John no, Coltrane. No, it's the Fresh Prince. The fresh <laughs> no, uh, I pick, uh, it's John Coltrane. He wasn't based in this. I mean, but he grew up in the South, and a lot of, um, yeah. you know, his uh, he was a lot of his formative experience was in the South, and you know, he moved to Philadelphia, but then he joined the Navy and he traveled around for a while. So, but I will kind of I was, um, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking uh, about all, um, you know, he is uh, just a musician that I actually probably I think maybe I borrowed a CD from. 
Lynn Small when I went to the summer camp, like when I was like in middle school, and I listened to him. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'll get a take. I'll get this. And I've listened to, I've listened to him. You know, I've listened. I listen to all the. I listen to bluegrass. I listen to blues. But I kind of comes and goes. But I always kind of listen to jazz and John Coltrane and, um, and uh, I even had in high school. My favorite tape was this tape that I had that had John Coltrane's Giant Steps on one side and had Fugazi's Repeater on the other side. <laughs> and, and I remember once I brought it to, I don't know what, why, why I even had this in class. For some reason, we had to bring something to class that we loved. So I brought that tape and played and played John Coltrane for the class. And then a friend of mine said, oh, can I borrow that? And I was like, oh, yeah, you can borrow it. Well, it wasn't even a friend of mine. It was somebody I knew. He's like, oh, yeah, like we listened to the tape and we thought it was great and yeah like you really have like so you have an eclectic taste in music and i was like all right just give where's the tape at where's the tape but i got the tape back and i don't know what i mean that tape of it it was eventually lost but i i don't know what happened to that tape then but uh that's my number one that the sort of that influence i guess i guess like john coltrane he changed the way i think about music Oh yeah, yeah I figured you'd have to put a, a jazz curveball in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's plenty of jazz musicians who I love. I think I put them in a different sort of category. Like, uh, you know, if I can, if I started including Nina Simone and uh, uh, Miles Davis, and yeah. Yeah, I, same with me on jazz. Like, that's, there's so many jazz artists from the South I would I would love to include that I felt like I was like diving down the rabbit hole with them. Um, is it me? Is it my number one? Is it yes. the last one here? It's you. All right. Uh, well, I went really obscure here and completely unpredictable and picked four guys who ended up in Athens, Georgia, Barry Buckmills and Stipe. As we know them as the name, the graffiti that was written on the church wall to suggest band, band names, R.E.M. Yeah, which are great, and 
especially, you know, Fables of the Reconstruction is one of my top five albums of all time. Um, and, and so, and it has so much just about that kind of feel of being rural and Southern. Uh, and they also, on Dead Letter Office, which I think is underrated and like a lot, which is kind of their B-sides and strange collections, they have this song, do you know the song The Voice of Harold, where he, they took the music from Seven Chinese Brothers and Michael Stipe reads the liner notes from a gospel album that he found in the, the thrift store on top of it? <laughs> and no. it, It's one of my absolute favorite R.E.M. songs ever about the pure tender quality of The Voice of Harold. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned in, in conjunction with them Flannery O'Connor because that's what I always thought to describe them like I the kind of world they're describing seems a lot like her world and both of those things were something that I kind of attached myself to at a certain point in time because it seemed familiar and interesting and I was, I was trying to think earlier today how to describe them but it's kind of like there's been there's musicians like so like Lou Reed is absolutely of and about New York right like if you think about New York, kind of the music of Lou Reed is there. Like Fugazi is very much the music of D.C. Uh, Dr. Dre is very much the music of Los Angeles, as we think about it. And I think R.E.M. are just kind of that for the Southeast. That's like what they talk about and what they sing about, and it comes out in everything they do. And it's hard to think now that I don't really listen to them anymore because there's no band I could have possibly listened to, to more for a certain period of time. And I was glancing back at their discography today, and I realized there's like half of their albums I never even have listened to in my life. Like, I stopped listening to them. Well, I guess I listened up through Automatic for the People, but I stopped really, really caring around Green. And I don't blame that on them. It's just kind of me, I suppose. But it seems to me when I think about them, their complete recording careers, 1983 through 1988, right? Which is Murmur or Green. But they kept going and kept producing. And, you know, I've heard songs off of the later albums and they're still making really, really good songs. So, uh, yeah, and no surprise, my pick is R.E.M. Well, I think for me, um, I listened pretty intently up through Monster and then... Mm-hmm. New Adventures in Hi-Fi and Up and Reveal and Around the Sun. Um, mm-hmm. I listened to songs off that, and those are the ones that I listen to now because I didn't listen to them a million times. You mm-hmm. know, I they were um, I wasn't sort of fanatical about those albums, and so mm-hmm. I can go to those songs like um, uh, Day Sleeper and Sad Professor and yeah, Day Sleeper is um, a good song. Yeah. And uh, uh, Collapse Into Now, I guess, was their last album back in 2011, mm-hmm. uh, as far as I know. And yeah. uh, I don't think I've ever really listened to it, but mm-hmm. it's something that I want to go and um, uh, sort of listen to later and sort of uh, enjoy in time, because um, I still enjoy the music. It's just that I, I'm, I'm not urgent to listen to it now. Obviously, after well, six as, years. Yeah, I don't have as much like emotional connection to that period of time. But I was, you know, I was driving across like rural Mississippi yesterday, and I got driver eight stuck on my head, like as I will when I'm driving through that landscape, right? It's, yeah, it's, like, so much, so much a part of it. Um, and also, so I'll give my brief, my brief thing. So I think Reckoning is their most underrated album, maybe. And a lot of people, well, this goes into a whole, whole debate about emo music and things like that uh, and a lot of people date emo music to beginning with Rites of Spring 
in D.C. But I also, if I'm talking to people who know music very well, will try to extend that back and say, like, Harbor Coat off of Reckoning is, to me, the first uh, where I would say the kind of sound of emo music starts. The actual emo music, not the kind people list as that today. But Yeah. Uh, and it should go mention as well, like, their uh, musicianship was excellent. They have probably the best kind of backing vocals that has gone on in rock music where uh, there's something interesting going on between the different singers and the backing vocals. Yeah. Uh, which was always great. And, uh, you know, as a bass player, I, I love Mike Mills because um, he does what he does. He doesn't... He's not a bass player that's going to go, like, on the list of, like, Jaco Pastorius and, and people like that, but he's so good at what he does. And is also very accessible on Twitter if you want to talk to him. Yeah, I actually, uh, I heard songs off of, I guess, Radio Free Europe I'd heard on uh, UT's uh, college radio station. And I really liked it, and I heard a few REM songs. And then that year at camp, must have been 84, because Mm -hmm. uh, I recorded on a 90-minute cassette, I recorded Murmur on one side and Reckoning off the other, both of which Christian Bush had that year. (laughs) And um, um, I carried that cassette around for almost 20 years, even though I had replaced the... uh, replace it as CDs and cassettes and in various forms over and over again over the years but that one cassette uh, sort of stuck with me and it had a little lag in a certain part and when I'd get to that song Mm -hmm. I'd always expect it to lag no matter what the format I was listening to it uh, in but yeah that was I think it's sort of connected to that part of my life too where all different sorts of new things were starting for me college and camp and uh being kind of a grown-up. Well, there they are. There are each of our five favorite Southern bands. And mine will probably change if we ever do it again, but that's what they are for right now at this point in time. Yep. All right. I guess we're going to call it a week. Thanks, guys. It's been a week. Yep. It's been a week. week. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Uh,